The worst outcome of the Derek Chauvin trial is the unthinkable, that he's found innocent. The second worst outcome would be if he's found guilty and then is considered a rogue cop, just a bad apple, that misses the whole point. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd. Of that, there's no question. He's charged with murder of an unarmed, restrained black man. And what we've heard over and over again in his gruesome trial is that what the officer did was far outside the bounds of acceptable behavior. Aside from the terrible crime, the torturous, slow murder which millions of people across the world witnessed for themselves, the biggest danger uh, danger is not any possibility Chauvin won't be found guilty. The massive threat to our nation is if Chauvin is convicted and people breathe a sigh of relief that, wow, we got rid of that bad apple. Now the matter of the killing of George Floyd is settled. That would be the second worst possible outcome. The worst, obviously, being his acquittal, which is frankly unthinkable. As Marjorie Cohn, our returning guest, says, as Chauvin's trial continues, we must remember that this is not simply the story of one rogue cop. It is a window into the anti-black violence perpetrated routinely by police in this country as part of a brutal and racist system. End of quote. What must not escape judgment is the long and ongoing context of police killing of unarmed black people and virtually all the time getting away with murder. Now we must add the name Dante Wright, unarmed, black, 20 years old, killed on April 11th. And the Minnesota police say it was an accident. If it weren't for the famous bystander video, it seems likely that the murder of George Floyd would have faded into the long-running saga. Well, just another in an incredibly long history of dead black men killed by cops The officers knowing full well the near certainty of their immunity from prosecution for, as it's been defined decade after decade, just doing their jobs. Marjorie Cohn's new article, uh, first published in Truthout, is titled simply and directly, Calling Chauvin a Bad Apple Denies Systemic Nature of Racist Police Violence. Marjorie Cohn, thanks for being with us on Keeping Democracy Live once again. Thanks for having me, Bert. Marjorie Cohn is Professor Emerita at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law, former president of the National Lawyers Guild, Deputy Secretary General of the International Association of Democratic Lawyers, and a member of the Advisory Board of Veterans for Peace. Good group. Her most recent book, Drones and Targeted Killing, Legal, Moral, and Geopolitical Issues. Well, again, the prosecution has been hammering home the same point over and over again. Chauvin was acting outside acceptable police behavior. What he did was all on his own. But as you point out, as eyewitness Genevieve Hansen testified, Chauvin looked comfortable with his weight on Floyd's neck. What does that tell us? Well, first of all, it's very rare that you have police officers testifying against each other. They have what's called the blue wall of silence, where they cover each other's backsides But given this video of 9 minutes and 29 seconds, we now know 
that's how long it lasted, that went viral around the world, they are adopting the strategy. They fired him and charged him criminally, and they're adopting the strategy of trying to distance themselves from him by saying, uh, no, he wasn't following his training. Well, not only did he violate his training, but he also violated acceptable police practices, and so did the other three officers um, who aided and abetted him, as do officers every day all over this country for years and years and years, harassing black people often to death. Yes. Happens so often, but the video cameras are not always there. What are the UN basic principles on the use of force and firearms by law enforcement officials? I hadn't uh, uh, heard of that. Is this the accepted rules of behavior? Is this a clear-cut guidance system? Yes, it is, and it is considered binding on all countries, Uh and that is that law enforcement must use nonviolent means before resorting to force and firearms, and only if the other means don't work. That's basically what the basic principles are in a nutshell. That's amazing. If that... I guess it's a loose binding, shall we say. You wrote of something of which I had not heard, the so-called killology training, something that the police union promulgates. What is this killology training? Well, it's interesting, Bert, because we have all these police officials saying, you know, we do this stellar training and it's in proportionality and everything is fine and he didn't follow his training. But the many police officers in the Minneapolis Police Department are are trained in this so-called killology training by the police union, which... Uh, serves a very, very regressive function in in covering and lying for police. So the killology training teaches officers how to kill rather than de-escalate conflict situations. It violates the basic principles. And indeed, the Minneapolis Police Department itself reported that it used violence against African Americans at seven times the rate that uh, they used force against violence against white people from 2015 to 2020. Well, at least they're getting it out there. And that, to me, again, as, as that eyewitness testified, that Chauvin looked so comfortable, nine minutes, and those other cops just standing there, how could he look so comfortable if it was so outside the rules? Very strange. You know, and prosecutors, of course, like every side, intend to win. They want to convict Chauvin. But I wonder, as part of their strategy, are they turning to a rogue cop characterization? What about this prosecutorial strategy? How often is this kind of strategy used by prosecution, and what are its effects? Well, first of all, it's rare that charges are even filed against officers. Uh, Police officers were charged with crimes in only 1% of all police killings, according to the uh, gold standard Uh, reporting service mapping police violence in 2020. But now that they had no choice because of this video, they had to charge him. They're trying to, again, isolate him as as a bad apple, as a rogue cop. And we heard that same rogue cop characterization um, after the 1991 Rodney King beating and the police killings of Michael Brown, Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, and Breonna Taylor. And that obscures the systemic nature of police violence against black and brown people in the United States 
even the best training in the world cannot teach police who are licensed to kill Mm -hmm. and deployed to enforce a racist system not to be racist. (sighs) Wouldn't that be nice if that could be done? You cite data from the Brookings Institution relative to the proportion of black police, of black people killed by police as compared to white people killed by police. What did they find? And it wasn't just limited to uh, Minnesota. Well, black people who are unarmed or not attacking police are 3.5 times more likely to be killed by police than white people. And police kill black people at more than twice the rate of whites, even though black people account for less than 13 percent of the U.S. population and more than 75 percent of the time chokeholds are applied on men of color. Whoa. Uh, They're illegal, aren't they? I thought they were. In many instances, they are. But they do it sometimes anyway. And the alleged, this is fascinating to me and puzzling. The alleged crime that sparked the murder of George Floyd was passing a counterfeit $20 bill. It's hard to imagine that offense alone could have resulted in what Chauvin did. Police often use, as you know, resisting arrest as a charge, as an excuse for their own violence. <laughs> the other three cops were there at the murder. They just stood around as the life was crushed from George Floyd. Do we have any idea about the reasons given by police to justify their, you know, just sitting there and allowing uh, the nine and a half minutes to happen? What, what, what reasons do they give? Well, we haven't really heard reasons from the other three cops who will go on uh, on trial separately, and they did aid and abet Derek Chauvin. Um, Officer Lane held Floyd's legs. Officer uh, King held Floyd's back while Chauvin choked him to death. And Officer Tuthwa kept bystanders from providing aid to Floyd. Mm. But... What Derek Chauvin said was that um, he had to get him under control because he was resisting. He wouldn't get into the car. And I guess that happened before Chauvin got there. Um, But he was he was trying to subdue him. And uh, we have seen use of force expert after use of force expert testify at the trial that once he was handcuffed, and uh, on the ground and restrained that, uh, that, that he was under control, he was not a danger, he was not a threat, and that subdual restraint mm. and neck compression was uh, totally out of line, violated not just to the Minneapolis Police Department training, but uh, p- police practices which are based on the Graham versus Connor standard, which is uh, seen through the eyes of a reasonable officer, not subjectively through Chauvin's eyes, but an objectively reasonable officer considering the nature of the crime. In this case, it was forgery, uh, counterpassing, mm-hmm. possibly passing a counterfeit bill, whether he was resisting the officers, which he was not once he was handcuffed on the ground, and whether he was an immediate threat to the officer or others, and uh, he was not. And the use of force expert that is testifying now, who is a law professor but is a former cop and and testifies extensively about uh, use of force by officers, uh, said that uh, George Floyd did not have the ability, opportunity, Mm. or intent to to, to, uh, pose an immediate threat to the officer or others. And so under the three-prong Graham versus Connor test set down by the Supreme Court, um, 
what Chauvin and his accomplices did was not objectively reasonable. And you say that police impunity is the norm. And my goodness, I can believe that. The idea, you know, oh, there's always the uh, ubiquitous resisting arrest or he was trying to run. You know, there's all kinds of these uh, excuses and justifications. There are hundreds of thousands of police officers in America. What do they take as a given when it comes to facing accountability? I mean, here we had this video, but in general, what do they take? What what do they take as a given when it comes to accountability? What should they expect? What do they expect? Well, as I said, to mapping police violence in 2020, police officers were charged with a crime in only 1% of police killings. So police officers know that they're not going to have to face the music, and that's why a lot of these police killings are done out in the open, in broad daylight, in public, and Chauvin, who was standing there with his hands in his pockets, with, with looking comfortable, yes. according to one of the eyewitnesses, um, if George Floyd was per, was posing such a threat and resisting, why would Chauvin have his hands in his pockets <laughs> and be looking so comfortable? And he and it's because he knows, and he knows people are filming. He sees the bystanders, several of them with with uh, cell phones filming, and yet he wasn't phased. Um, probably thinking that uh, he would he would not face any accountability. And it wasn't until the massive protests after that videotape went viral um, that really did force the Minneapolis Police Department to take action and uh, and the, the prosecutors to charge him. Yeah, interesting. That does explain how he could be so nonchalant and cavalier about it. He figured he, uh, yeah, we always get off. We always get off. And... Uh, Malcolm X, Fred Hampton, Martin Luther King, very public and powerful leaders of black Americans, being so high profile, each knew that he faced possible violent attacks. And of course, they did. The world knew of this risk and possibility for such black leaders, but not George Floyd. I want to ask about something that President Biden said about George Floyd's killing. He said even Dr. King's assassination did not have the worldwide impact that George Floyd's death did. What happened to George Floyd, now you've got how many people around the country, millions of cell phones. It's changed the way everybody's looking at this. Look at the millions of people marching around the world. The world! So my point is that I think people are really realizing that this is a battle for the soul of America. Who are we? What do we want to be? end of quote. Was he right? Did the killing of George Floyd have greater impact than those other killings, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Fred Hampton? You know, we really don't know yet. Time will tell. Certainly with social media and cell phone videos, uh, this led to perhaps the largest protest in U.S. history. It's led to greater awareness and changes. But the killings of black people continue. Dante Wright, for example, um, but if you look at history, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, the Black Panthers had a tremendous impact yes. on civil rights in this country. It hasn't stopped police killings of black people. And uh, I, I am sorry to say I don't think that George Floyd's killing will either. Yeah. But we have seen tremendous changes um, since then and, uh, and some greater sensitivity. But real change we haven't seen yet. No, we haven't, and I wish things happened quickly, but they don't, especially in America. I think it's fair to say 
that what's really unique about the George Floyd incident is that it was caught on the cell phone camera. What do you think would have come from this incident had there been no cell phone video? How often do you think such police killings of unarmed black men have gone unreported? I think daily. We don't see it or hear it, and so it doesn't exist in the minds of uh, at least white people. Black people are very aware of it. Um, but, but you know, um, other police killings have happened in similarly open ways, mm -hmm. and there has been video footage. For example, in 2014, Michael Brown was killed right. while walking down a public street. His body was left on the ground for four hours. Eric Garner was choked to death on a public sidewalk after he was suspected of selling illegal untaxed cigarettes. And both of those killings sparked public outrage, led to the Black Lives Matter movement. There was video footage in each case. None, though, was as clear and graphic as the images that documented George Floyd's death. And what happened? Neither the officer who killed Michael Brown, who was called Darren Wilson, nor the officer who killed Eric Garner, his name is Daniel Pantaleo, was ever indicted for a crime. And both of them, both of them were on video. That's they were, as was the Rodney King video, yes. and we didn't even have cell phones in those days, no. but bless his heart, a man named George Halliday had a, one of those old video cameras, took a picture of the beating of Rodney King, and that led to outrage all over, not just in this country, yes. but all over the world. I went to Portugal shortly after that, and a Portuguese woman, the first thing she said when she heard I was from the United States was, boy, the police really are violent against black people in your country. And that's because of the Rodney King beating. Mm. And police uh, misconduct lawyers say that although before the Rodney King beating went viral and that videotape was seen around the world, jurors would be very hesitant during jury selection to say, uh, well, we don't think the police, they would, they would say, uh, they, you know, they didn't think that police used excessive force very regularly. But after they saw that Rodney King beating, many more prospective jurors would say, yes, police can use excessive force. So in that sense, oh. um, I, I guess it did lead to, to some change. It happens slowly. For those who may have just tuned in, our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Marjorie Cohn, uh, former uh, head of the National Lawyers Guild, Professor Emerita at the uh, Thomas Jefferson School of Law. Her new article published on Truthout is Calling Chauvin a Bad Apple Denies Systemic Nature of Racist Police Violence. And of course, lynchings were designed to terrorize black people. They, what they say is, if you go outside the norms we set for you people, this is what will happen. In terms of intent, how similar to a run-of-the-mill lynching do you think was the killing of George Floyd? Well, certainly nine minutes and 29 seconds of, you know, publicly choking him, torturing him to death is reminiscent of the lynchings. And uh, during the hearings in the um, International Commission uh, on Systemic Racist Police Violence, which I have been yeah. serving as a rapporteur for, um, one of the witnesses was one of the lawyers for the Floyd family. Her name is Jasmine Rand, and she testified 
Floyd. Derek Chauvin kneeled on George Floyd's neck in broad daylight on a street filled with spectators and seemed to take pleasure in killing him all the while knowing he was being filmed, sending a message to black people in Minnesota and those who watched it throughout America that this could be you next. You could be the next Michael Brown. You could be the next Tamir Rice. You could be the next Jacob Blake, Philando Castile, that there are two different justice systems in America, one for black injustice and one for white justice. Wow, that's quite a message to send out, and it's worked for hundreds and hundreds of years. One of the accepted responsibilities of black parenting seems to be teaching their kids how to act around police. <laughs> what about that? I mean, I, I've heard from friends of mine who are people of color, and they say, yeah, they have to do that all the time. Uh, a friend of mine was stopped for speeding, and as, as he was uh, pulled over, he was speeding, as he pulled, he put his both hands on the, on the, uh, in the window of his car so that the police would see. I mean, having to do that, it's just, it shows uh, examples of uh, incredibly systemic racism that's really deep in our system. And we do have a new president right now, thank goodness, and I was, I was sincerely impressed that in his inaugural speech, Joseph Biden used the phrase systemic racism. For, for Presidents Kennedy and Johnson, there had to be great sustained pressure applied to them to get them to take action, which they finally did. What's your impression of this new president relative to understanding the nature of our long tradition of systemic racism? Well, you know, given the fact that we have this, uh, this new focus on systemic racism because of George Floyd's torture and murder, mm -hmm. um, I'm not surprised that Biden used those words. Uh, time will tell whether his actions comport with his his uh, you know very positive rhetoric. Um, he does support the um, George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, which the House of Representatives passed in March, and it's languishing in the Senate. Um, it bans. It bans chokeholds and carotid holds. It bans qualified immunity and no-knock warrants, creates a national database of bad officers, um, wow. and strengthens federal oversight of state and local law enforcement, makes racial profiling illegal, mandates body cameras. But it only changes things at the federal level, not at the state and local level. I would have preferred to see Joe Biden support the BREATHE Act, which would defund many law enforcement groups and in turn fund community programs, non-carceral, non-punitive right. programs, particularly um, in cases where there are uh, mental health crises, where mm -hmm. police have no business responding. Um, there should be trained medical people, um, social workers, you know, psychologists, um, we saw in the commission, in my work with the commission, over and over and over, people in mental health crisis and the police uh, and, and, and families calling uh, for medical help and being referred to, to the police in 911. The police show up mm. and within minutes they've killed mm. these black people who are undergoing mental health crises. Mm. Well, what, what is that bill again? I mean, I understand things dying in the Senate. That's apparently where good bills go to die. But just in case, you know, listeners want to do something about that, call their U.S. senator. What's, what's the name of that bill? It's called the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. Uh-huh. And 
I want to find out about this International Commission of Inquiry on Systemic Racist Police Violence Against People of African Descent in the United States. What, what is that? And tell us about your work on that and on the Chauvin trial, please. Well, I've been following the Chauvin trial and writing and doing commentary about it, but um, for several months we have been holding hearings uh, in the cases of 45 black men and women, 44 of whom were killed by police, the 45th, Jacob Blake, was left paralyzed, and uh, right. documenting, and we're writing a report, it's, a, it's almost 200 pages long, it will be released later this month, um, with findings of fact and recommendations, many addressed to um, local and national and international policymakers. But the reason that we convened this, and there are 12 commissioners uh, hearing evidence from all over the all over the world. These are, are um, really prominent experts from all over the world. I'm a rapporteur helping to write the report. Um, but the UN Human Rights Council mm. um, was asked. To, uh, to establish such a commission uh, about this situation in the United States, and the Trump administration put so much pressure on it that they backed down, but they, they, the Human Rights Council uh, mandated that the High Commissioner of Human Rights do a report on systemic racist police violence against against Africans and African uh, Afri people of African descent all over the world, and so that's why we established this commission with all of these hearings, 45 different instances, 44 uh, people killed by police, um, to to provide input to the High Commissioner for her report, and mm. also to be used by activist organizers and litigants in the United States. And uh -huh. I'm hoping that this report will be very useful. Wow, sounds like it's uh, an important report that's coming out, uh, and I will be sure to uh, mention that uh, again. One of the, I mean, th there's the whole system of mass incarceration, the war on drugs, that all fits into this uh, context, please. I mean, does it not? Uh, the uh, context of systemic racism and what what can people do? I, I like to leave people with the option for for doing something. You can check out the International Commission of Inquiry report. And, and what else? What about this war on drugs and mass incarceration? These are all related issues, are they not? Well, the war on drugs has been used as a pretext to stop black people and leading to mass incarceration of African Americans. And the killing of Dante Wright is a very good example of um, using an expired tag as a pretext to stop him probably looking for drugs. And then when they saw the, I think it was an air freshener or something hanging from the mirror, then they went back, they found an outstanding misdemeanor warrant and tried to take him into custody. And, you know, most of the time you're not taken into custody for misdemeanors, certainly not for counterfeit bills like George Floyd was mm. accused of passing. Um, and there was a struggle and the officer claimed yes. that she confused her, her gun for her taser. And this is an experienced officer. If she doesn't know the difference between a gun and a taser, I have a bridge that I can sell you cheap. Um, and it was, you know, it was, uh, I, I, I certainly haven't seen the results of the long-term investigation and the police are calling it an accident. But uh -huh. uh, I think there's one word that can explain what happened to Dante Wright, and, uh, and that is racism, systemic racist police violence. Doesn't end with the conviction of Derek Chauvin, that is for sure. Marjorie Cohen, thanks so much for being with us again and, uh, and for the work you're doing. Very important stuff. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Bert. All right. How many 
mothers have to cry? How many brothers gotta die? How many more times? How many more times? How many more marches? Try to justify Oh, each and every time Playing in the park Taking your jog Sitting on the couch In your own house Never seen a matter what we do You think we don't matter But we do, you got a problem Cause the city on fire But you're quiet When niggas die Not the soul about that body That we buried You were God, now you no longer Sing these words out loud All these beautiful, precious black lives Lost in the name of senseless white pride Tears falling from us How many mothers have to cry? How many brothers gotta die? How many more times? How many more times? How many more marches? And on the subject of racism, it's been with us for a very long time. When I was going to elementary school in the 1950s and early 60s, we were taught history is a straight line, that progress is a natural and key element in the movement of time. Oppressed nations and peoples would eventually be free. It was very comforting, of course. Of course, bad guys were always defeated and the good guys always won. It was set in the stars. Nothing could stop progress. Well, as one who grew up immensely proud and patriotic of our great country, it came as a shock to learn that the tiniest little changes had twists and turns gone only slightly differently 
things would have turned out very differently. And the reality that the good guys didn't always win was indeed sobering. One of the many fun things about learning about and discussing history with those who have some expertise is the myriad of what-ifs. And given that history truly does turn on a dime and that we today are shaping history in each moment, these what-ifs are not at all a waste of time. Well, one of the big stories in Western history, of course, is the outcome of the late 18th century War of Independence by the former colonies against their British masters. The War of Independence, so-called American Revolution. It's pretty much uniformly seen as a victory for freedom from a distant, aristocratic, uncaring ruling class, establishing instead a new and exciting republic, establishing a self-governing entity serving the common people equally under law. But there is this from Eleanor Holmes Norton in her book, Slave Nation. The price of freedom from England was bondage for American slaves in America. What? The price of freedom from England was bondage for Amer African slaves in America? America would be a slave nation. The old simplistic description of progress, of course, is now understood to be inadequate. The indigenous and enslaved suffered inexcusably. Why did it take so long, for example, for the United States to end slavery. What we'll focus on for this segment of Keeping Democracy Live is the question asked by our guest author and historian Keith Brooks. Would slavery have ended sooner if the British won the American Revolutionary War? How dare we ask that? As there is much we can learn from this examination going forward, this is not at all a waste of time. The what-ifs of history are indeed worth looking at, and as he says, every historical moment could have happened differently. Keith Brooks, thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Keith Brooks is a longtime political activist and organizer and recently retired New York City high school educator. Whew, thank you for that. He also taught at Richmond College and at Alternate U. This essay is from a chapter, The Hidden History of the American Revolution in Myth America, a book Keith is writing. He's been published in the History News Network, Black Agenda Report, Op-Ed News, the Nation, Baltimore Sun, Amsterdam News, Labor Research Review, the Greenville Post, and a few other sites. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Keith Brooks. Your question, oh, your question is clear and worth pondering. What if the British had won, had defeated the colonists' bid to break from the mother country? Is it possible that the cause of freedom and the ideals of the Declaration of Independence might have been paradoxically better served by that outcome? Your thoughts? Well, um, in writing a chapter on uh, the hidden history of the American War of Independence, uh, the main point of which was to establish that uh, there were three main causes, not just no taxation without representation and British tyranny, but a third uh, cause that united the 13 colonies was actually in defense of slave owner rights. Um, what happened was that in England in 1772, there was a legal decision that uh, threw alarm through the slave owners in the colonies that basically said that there is no positive right to own other human beings in, uh, in England. Uh, the colonist slave owners took that as a possible threat. Um, to their right to be slave owners, uh -huh. and uh, basically it was a uni another of the unifying forces 
that propelled the American War of Independence. Um, huh. As yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask. That's interesting. So, the the right to uh, own other people was a motivating factor for some people in the War of Independence. Who would have... uh, absolutely, and not just in the South. Uh, this great book, a seminal book called Slave Nation, by the Blumrosens. Uh, pretty much establishes that, in fact, slavery was a major unifying force, not just in the South, but uh, there's an extensive uh, couple of chapters on the role of uh, John Adams uh, in um, uh, telling the uh, Southern slave owners that there would be unity among the colonies on the issue of uh, not touching their slave-owning rights. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's... That's so reassuring. Now, your essay starts with an interesting quote from the Marquis de Lafayette, who had done much to militarily support the colonists in their drive for independence. Please share that with us and its significance as viewed from 250 years later. Well, I think it's such a great quote. I think it should be everywhere that we see a statue of Lafayette. Uh, There should be this quote. Um, There's a Lafayette High School in Brooklyn, for instance. Lafayette was a uh, favorite son of George Washington, so to speak. Uh, He and Washington were very close. Um, At the the end of the uh, War of Independence, when Lafayette saw the results of the aid that he helped to give the colonists in getting France on their side, um, he, he wrote to uh, uh, Washington, and this is what he uh, said, at least in part, quote, I would never have drawn my sword in the cause of America if I could have conceived that thereby I was founding a land of slavery. Um, You know, it's a terrific quote, and it says that, uh, you know, he realized what the outcome was um, of his his efforts to help... uh, the colonists' uh, independence fight against England. Absolutely amazing. Who who would have thought that? And you know, yeah. history is it was just glossed over so much. It's so much stuff in there that if if it doesn't fit, it's kind of erased. And erasing history is really important for the power structure to continue in power. Now, one of the main sparks of the struggle for independence was who should pay for the British war with the French from 1756 to 1763. What that war was actually about has some bearing on the eventual spread of slavery in America. I didn't know that. Please uh, tell us. Uh, well, for sure, that was a precursor. Um, at the end of that war, um, which the British defeated the French and pretty much established their supremacy on that part of the North American uh, continent, at the end of that war, uh, among other things, the British had declared a proclamation line um, beyond which the, their, their, their people, their colonists, could not go. This is 1763. George Washington has fought on the side of the British, of which he's a, a, an English citizen. And um, as a result of that, England uh, st- started... Uh, um, uh, putting putting more and more soldiers into the colonies, uh, which meant uh, having to pay for them, and that came uh, in the form of various taxes. Yes. And uh, <clears throat> as things developed, it got to a point 
where with one incident after another of uh, resistance to British tyranny and to taxation mm-hmm. without representation, mm-hmm. um, eventually uh, there was a call for independence. But even before that, there was a Lord Dunmore that's uh, exceptionally oh. important. It was the governor of Virginia who in 1775, I believe it is, uh, <clears throat> when fighting had already started, basically uh, issued a proclamation that said that any person held as a slave in a colonist in rebellion against the crown would be free if they came over to the British side. Uh, The result of that was literally tens of thousands of black people who came over to the British. The estimate is that there were about 5,000 black people who fought on the side of the colonists, and tens of, this is pretty much uh, something that uh, almost all historians agree on. Tens of thousands of black people flocked to the British lines. They saw that a better chance at liberty with the British than with their uh, the colonists. And probably even more so, even a greater number, number used the event of the war to flee north to Canada and south to Florida and escape uh, completely. So that was, a, by the way, the colonists, George Washington refused to get to make the same offer uh, to uh, uh, black people held as slaves in the, in the colonies. There was eventually a easing up of that restriction, but uh, it was mainly um, uh, a la- uh, free, free black people were allowed to join uh, with very few, if any, uh, uh, guarantees given to people held in slavery like the British did. So it's very clear that tens of thousands, one estimate is 100,000. And remember, at this point in history, the population mm. of enslaved people in the colonies was 500,000. The total population of all 13 colonies was 2 million, just to give you some perspective. Jeez. So one-fourth, one-fifth of all people in the colonies were held in bondage. Absolutely amazing. So much to learn about history. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is called Keeping Democracy Alive, and we got to learn from history if we want to change it. Our guest on this uh, segment is Keith Brooks, who's written an article, Would Slavery Have Ended Sooner If the British Won the American Revolutionary War? Now, before reading your article, I had never heard of the Somerset decision, what was that, and how was it taken by the southern region of America? Well, as I was just saying before, the Somerset decision was 1772 in England, where uh, some a, um, a person brought to England in bondage uh, sued for their freedom uh, while in England. It resulted in a legal decision that under British law, there is no right to own other human beings. It, hello? I'm still here. I can hear you. There is, there is nothing that says slavery is outlawed in the colonies. But in England, there is no positive law for uh, to own other human beings. This was publicized in the 13 colonies in the larger chapter that I've written. Mm-hmm. I have a pretty detailed uh, rundown of how the press, the newspapers in the colonies, ah. uh, treated the Somerset decision. This was widely known. If you were an educated slave owner, you well knew about the Somerset decision. Um, so it's, it's part of the hidden history of the American War of Independence, uh, the role that, that uh, 
um, you know, unifying around slave-owning rights. By the way, um, in terms of the answer to the question about would slavery have ended sooner, I think it's important to note, you know, this is all hypothetical, of course. but it's a way of saying that history, it is, it's against inevitabilism, inevitability of history, as uh, Gary Nash would say, historian Gary Nash. Um, in fact, if other things, all other things being equal, um, slavery was ended by England in its colonies in 1832. That's 33 years wow. before the end of slavery in what was what became the United States. The slave population in the United States in 1832 was two million. It doubled in 33 years to four million. In other words, in 1860, there were 4 million people held in bondage during the period of time where slavery was outlawed in uh, the British colonies. So my hypothetical is simply, you know, another world is possible. There's there's not an inevitability. (laughs) You could look at uh, major decisions that were made or not made, and it it speaks to the force of leadership and social movements, Um, I argue, that... uh, it was quite possible that with, um, if England had defeated the colonies, here you have the Declaration of Independence, which I hold up as a revolutionary document. Sure. It says all men, we, all men are created equal. I hold up that if the colonists had been defeated uh, and England had freed all these people who were enslaved, what is England going to do? They're going to try and put them back into slavery? There would have been massive resistance to that, number one. Number two, there were forces among the uh, British military in the colonies that supported uh, the end of slavery. There was a growing abolitionist movement in England as well as in the colonies. And on top of that, there was, tr- there was uh, a hotbed of slave revolts in the Caribbean, uh, which no, true. people don't know there was close connections between what was going on in Jamaica and the islands and what was going on in the colonies. So I think it could have been, and and just uh, 10 years later, you had the first successful slave revolt in in world history in Haiti. So uh, it was a cauldron of revolt and resistance against the inhumanity of slavery. And so I say, you know, project a world in which the colonists would have been defeated. What wouldn't have been defeated was the idea that all people are created equal and that slavery needed to be abolished. It could have changed the nature of what was to then, what was then to come. I make no uh, brief for England. England goes on hmm. to become uh, uh, the world's most rapacious empire. Oh, it replaced uh, chattel slavery with wage slavery. Yes. So that's not the issue, is, you know, England is the good guys. The issue <laughs> is that there was a, a tremendously fertile ground for the abolition of slavery, um, which in one country took place, Haiti, uh, but in others, the United States was the third last country to abolish slavery, 1865. Only Brazil and Cuba abolished slavery at a later date in the 1880s. And as it turns out, there's a wonderful book called Slavery by Another Name by Douglas Blackman that talks about how uh, very carefully uh, the Southerners manipulated the laws to kind of continue actual slavery, even worse, actually into the 20th century. Now, there are various heroes in history. I mean, we all, you know, when they teach uh, history to kids, there's got to be these heroes. Crispus Attucks is fairly well known as being the first martyr of the American Revolution in 1770. Uh, But tell us about 
Titus, later known as Colonel Ty, what were, and, and the ribbon that he wore on his chest. Nobody knows right. about him. Right. First, a quick uh, tribute to Gary Nash has, I think, one of the best books on the multidimensional character of the American War of Independence, that it was not just against the British. It was, it was uh, uh, tenant farmers against the landowners, many of whom were in rebellion against uh, the British. Um, so, Christmas Addicts rightfully is held up as one of the heroes fought against the British uh, or the, in terms of uh, protest in, in Boston, um, black man. Uh, who was, uh, I believe, a uh, runaway slave. Um, So he gets a lot of credit. Uh, What's very little known is uh, Titus, uh, a a person who was enslaved, who went over to the British lines, uh, based upon the the, uh, um, Dunmore Proclamation, and winds up being a military leader leading guerrilla bands, black and white people, throughout Monmouth County, New Jersey, and what they would do would be, uh, they, they, now remember, they're fighting against the, the colonists in rebellion. What they would do is they would go from plantation to plantation, freeing other people who were enslaved. Uh, they would uh, destroy the crops of the colonists in rebellion. Um, so if we want to talk about heroes, yes, there's, tight, there's, there's addicts. Um, but I think a better analogy uh, for uh, Colonel Ty, formerly known as Titus, is actually Harriet Tubman, who freed hundreds of slaves. Well, uh, I wish we could find out more about Ty, uh, Colonel Ty, right, right. because my sense is that he must have freed hundreds of slaves also. Wow, fascinating. It's ama- You know, what we don't know about history is <laughs> oftentimes the most important stuff that made the biggest difference. Now, so many wars have been fought for the interests of moneyed elites, while young working-class men died by the zillions in the fields. World War I, most obvious. What about the issue of class? The street rabble that General Washington so disdained was joined by American aristocrats in seeking independence, often for their own separate reasons. You cite an interesting quote from historian Ellen Gilbert, Class and race forged ties of solidarity in opposition to both the slaveholders and the colonial elites. That's interesting. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, well, I mean, if you try to project into what it must have been like, you have different uh, forces at work in different parts of the colonies. And uh, the tenant farmers who could have been fighting against the uh, landowners, many of whom were slave owners, uh, could have been and probably did unite at various times with sla- people held in slavery and resistance. Uh, there were it, it, the the main point is that it was so multidimensional, and all that we're uh, basically fed in our schools uh, and in our textbooks. I mean, I I was a high school teacher for twenty something years. Uh, there's nothing about this. Um, if there's ever even a mention of uh, Dunmore's proclamation or of the fact yeah. that there were rebellions against the slave owners who were landowners by ten farmers, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. um, it, it's not even considered part of the history of the so-called American Revolution. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the class issue is it's always glossed over. You know, I do think... World War One, which I'm a, a geek about, uh, you know, the, the British and the Germans and all those people, they were basically working class people fighting for the interests of the elites. 
And that's happened over and over and over again. And certainly, you know, most uh, Southerners did not own other people. And they must have had some uh, feelings about about the owners. So how much of a factor do you think it was in the drive for independence from England, the desire to protect and expand slavery? And slavery did, of course, eventually expand. And that was a big, uh, at least political battle within the United States government. So how much of a factor was pushing for slavery in the desire to uh, gain independence? Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, it's sometimes pointed out, well, the American War of Independence led to the northern colonies abolishing slavery. Well, that didn't take place in most places until the 1820s, uh, like in New York. Um, but in, that's you know it's half the glass is half full or the glass is half empty. Um, in fact, upon the defeat of the British, slavery in the newly formed United States went on to it boomed. It boomed from seven hundred thousand people in 1790, where the, when there was a, actually a census, to four million people in 1860 right. on the eve of the Civil War. Four million people. That's the single largest slave republic in human history, bigger than Brazil. Somebody pointed out wow. in Brazil. Brazil definitely had more uh, Africans who were kidnapped and brought into Brazil than were brought into the uh, the part of North America became the colonies. But it's the United States that has the distinction of having the largest slave uh, population in in human history. So it boomed. It uh, it catapulted. It uh, opened the door. And it, and it also has to be said that the defeat of the British uh, also opened the door for what was already occurring, which was the attempted genocide of the indigenous people uh, of the Americas. Um, that Proclamation Act uh, in 1763 marked the line uh, beyond which the colonists, according to the British, were not supposed to move, uh, which was immediately, you know, uh, overridden. Right. And uh, it's to the detriment of the Native Americans, the American, mm. so-called American Indians, um, that, in fact, um, the uh, the British were defeated. Uh, more, once again, more Native Americans, more indigenous people, it's not all but but most uh, sided with the British. They saw that they had a better chance of survival with the British than they did with the predatory colonists who wanted nothing more than to move west. And by the way, George Washington was one of them. He was one of the biggest landowners amongst the uh, colonists, and as well as obviously uh, some many people do know he was a slave owner. And, and I don't really actually know his attitudes about the indigenous people. I can only guess. Uh, yeah, there's some choice quotes somewhere about uh, the need to annihilate. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I don't think I'm exaggerating. There's a choice. Uh, there's a quote somewhere uh, where Washington talks about the need to eliminate yeah. the native population. Yeah, it's amazing if you look at uh, history. I mean, there was uh, Andrew Jackson, for example. Well, it's interesting that you end your piece with a reference to Cho and Lai. I probably didn't pronounce that right. When he was asked, he was a leader of China. Uh, when he was asked about whether the French Revolution was a step forward in history. And his response was, it's 
too soon to tell. Now, that must have been in the 1970s, I guess, or maybe 60s. What does that mean regarding our topic today? Talk about that, if you would, please. Well, I think, you know, the point is when we look back, the assumption, again, about inevitability is that we see, you know, it's really uh, plugged into our heads that the birth of the United States was the birth of freedom. Um, But if we look back and if we look forward as to what it has meant for the world, uh, what uh, Joe and I said, maybe it's too too soon to tell. Uh, Well, uh, is it too soon to tell with the United States? It's a question to be asked uh, that it was a, uh, a progressive thing. When we look at uh, what the United States has brought to people around the world, um, from the use of the first uh, nuclear weapons after World War II to the uh, nonstop overthrow of other countries that uh, fight for their independence, uh, we could see that yeah, most yeah. clearly right now in Venezuela and Iran and numerous other countries, Chile, Haiti, kidnapping Aristide out of his own country while he was president. I mean, you know, it's a pretty outrageous list of things that the United States has done uh, in that regard. So the question is, uh, do you think that uh, it has been a uh, step forward in history for the United States to have attained uh, world uh, supremacy? And right now that world supremacy is no longer... A, uh, a unipolar world uh, yeah. with, uh, as it was for 20 years after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, we're seeing that uh, the United States' efforts at maintaining hegemony could wind up uh, leading to another world war. For sure. And, and as you said before, it's not to defend the British. They were not exactly good guys. The more I learn about their racist, imperialist, uh, brutal history... Yeah, the less I like Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> this is not about them being good guys. No. What it's about is a different configuration of the world that uh-huh. was possible. And, um, you know, uh, I think also uh, uh, a blow against American exceptionalism, which I think is very important, the idea that the United States somehow stands above all other nations in supremacy, uh, not just militarily, but morally, which uh, I think is yeah. clearly a question. Well, if people want to read more of your uh, your history writings, uh, what can you suggest? Well, uh, I, I suggest that I get done with the book I'm writing. <laughs> um, the first chapter is on the hidden, well, actually the second chapter, the hidden history of the American War of Independence. Um, you could find the article um, on would slavery have ended sooner if the Brits had won on a site called Op-Ed News, O-P-E-D News. It's been republished on a number of other sites also. And um, I, you know, people want to contact me there or leave comments there. I really appreciate this opportunity, by the way. Well, thank you. uh, To, uh, you know, kind of uh, explain and expand on some of these these points. Um, So, unfortunately, I don't have a book written yet, but I'm in the process of writing a book. We'll watch for it, and it's always... Very useful, I think, to look into actual history, to know the truth. Something about the truth shall make you free. Keith Brooks, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Well, thank you very much for the time, and I really appreciate it. All right.